0: We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. I'm here at the Jordan River. It flows north to south from the Sea of Galilee all the way down into the Dead Sea. And of course, the entire Bible speaks about this river often. The Israelites, when they uh, were released from captivity in Egypt, they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And of course, John the Baptist baptized in this river and Jesus himself was baptized in this river. In fact, in Luke chapter three, Jesus is baptized and God affirms him. And and there's so many good things said about him in that chapter. And you would expect after the affirmation of God, after this big moment, that maybe uh, Jesus would be led into this exciting, victorious moment. But instead, he's led into a place of difficulty, a place of temptation, and Luke chapter four, verses one to 13, records that. Says this, When Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all the time and became very hungry. Verse three, When the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, no. The scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. And Jesus replied, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scripture says, he will order his angels to protect and guard you and they will hold you up with their hands and you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And Jesus replied, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Then the devil had finished tempting him. He left him until the next opportunity came. Sometimes when we experience the affirmation of God or we experience a blessing in our lives and then we experience opposition on the back end we can sometimes think is that mean that wasn't real but we need to understand that any sort of opposition we face in this life it doesn't mean that necessarily we haven't been doing things right or we have been doing things right. And the story of Jesus helps us understand that. Good morning. Welcome to week six of our seven-week series, Growing Up with the Best Life Coach Ever, and that being Jesus. Next week, our teaching pastor, Keith Smith, is going to conclude our series, and then the week after that, we're going to start a brand new series, and that series is called Dealing with Difficult People. Now, I'm telling you two weeks in advance because I'd like you to invite some people to come to this. No, not the difficult people in your life. (laughs) I think even people who don't, they don't understand church or faith or God, and they're not sure what to make of it, we all have this in common. We all deal with difficult people. Can I get a witness? Yeah, we all do. Even difficult people deal with difficult people. (laughs) In fact, you know, we all know there's always people that are going to, you know, players are going to play, 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 play. Haters are going to hate, 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 hate. And sometimes you just got to shake it off, move on. And we're going to talk about that over the course of four weeks as we deal with dealing with difficult people. So make sure you invite someone to join that from work, from, from your sco- place of school, or a family member, or others that may not normally want to be a part of a gathering like this. This will be very helpful to them. This week, we're going to talk about expecting and overcoming opposition. Uh, Pastor Keith actually wrote that title for me, and I liked it because it's jam-packed, filled with meaning. Uh, the key phrase up front before we even jump into what the opposition looked like and we read about in Luke chapter 4 is expecting. Have you ever noticed in life when something unexpected happens to you, it's jarring? Even if it's a good thing, it's jarring. In fact, that was jarring. I don't know how that happened. Someone can turn the lights off. That's actually not part of the message. So anyways, it can be a little, here's a word for you. Look at this. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Because of the worst. (laughs) Happy birthday, Pastor Jonathan. Happy birthday to you. A little Uh, unexpected, a little jarring. Back to God's Word. There you go. <laughs> okay. All right. All, right, all, right, all right. Yeah. Oh, you guys. I honestly thought I dodged a bullet there all week and last week. So unexpected things happen in your life. And they're, they're, I'm turning red. I can feel it. <laughs> And they're a little discombobulating. Actually, we have the kids in the house today, and that's your word for the week, discombobulate. And I'd like you to work that into a a sentence or a phrase to use with your parents. (laughs) Here's the thing. When something unexpected happens, it's jarring. It's a little disturbing. And it causes the amygdala part of our brains to actually engage in either fight, flight, or freeze. In fact, as you turn to page 34 in your Jesus Project book, or Chapter 4 of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I'm going to show you a little video because our kids are in the room. Two beloved staff members, Pastor Richard, who I used to love, who was just on stage here, uh, our worship pastor, our music pastor, and Leader Steph, our next children's, uh, next-gen team lead. uh, She and Pastor Richard have been engaged in this social media experiment of sorts for almost three years, it kind of looks like a little bit of a war, but apparently it's an experiment. They, they surprise each other, just to see how each other will respond in those moments. In fact, here's a little summary of their kind of interactions on the screen. Oh oh my! I'm taking a break. (laughs) Yeah. I just love that last response. See, neither of them expected each other. This is the course of over three years, so you know they have plenty of gaps where, and this is all on their Instagram. You can watch them do this, but so they surprise each other, and the reaction is either fight. Flight or freeze. What are you going to do in that moment? Here's the problem with opposition in our lives. If we never expect it, we're going to always enter into those phases. And what happens is we become demoralized and defeated in the midst of even some good things that might be going on in our lives. So the question that is answered in Luke chapter 4 is, when can we expect to see or face opposition? And it's interesting as you go even into the first verse, the first verse actually connects what's gonna happen over the next 13 with the previous chapter. It says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember in chapter three, we already went through this. I mentioned it earlier. He was baptized in water by a cousin, John, and God the Father spoke words of love and affirmation over his son. The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. He's filled with the Spirit, and in the very next moment, he has to encounter and experiences oppositions from the forces of evil. Now, why is that important for us to remember? Because we have some baked-in premises, you and I do. I mean, don't we all kind of think that if you live a good life, a wise life, smart life, a God-centered life, an ethical life, don't we always feel like then life should be good? Life should be good because we are being good. That's what Job's friends thought. Job, the most ancient book in the Old Testament, his friends come across Job, and his family is dying, his health is is waning, his finances have collapsed, and what do they say to Job? You must have messed up, because that's what we kind of feel. We feel, most of us feel, that ordinary life should be smooth. Ordinary life should be good. And if we're experiencing difficulties, oppositions, temptations, and trials, those kind of moments, then we feel that's not ordinary and somebody must have messed up. It might have been you, it might have been someone else, but someone's messed up. But then we come across this text in Luke chapter 4, and we realize it's not always the case. For example, we all know it's not good to lie, right, adults? For example for the children right now. It's not good to lie, right? Because we know liars have to do other lies to cover the previous lies, and eventually those lies catch up to them, and it introduces a lot of problems and troubles and opposition in their life, right? So a lot of bad things that come from lying. Now what if you choose to live a completely ethical and integrity-driven life where you never lie? Guess what? A lot of troubles will come into your life as a result of not lying, right? See, here's what we're learning from Luke chapter four. When should you expect to see or experience opposition? Can you say this word with me? Always. That's actually ordinary life. Ordinary life is because this world is now not the way God intended it to work. It means that opposition is coming in our lives throughout our days. Throughout our lives. So we have pockets of peace with pockets that are disturbed, and they're not abnormal, they're actually fairly normal. Now, why is this important? When I was a young adult, and even into adulthood, because we're all wired a little bit differently. I I love how God paired me with a spouse in life who's very different from me because she's so pragmatic and practical. She's seldom surprised by people by their bad behavior, good behavior, or anything. She's not surprised. She realizes this is everyday life. Me, on the other hand, are always blindsided because they have this kind of idealism about life. And here's the problem with me when I was a young adult and going into adulthood. I thought my good intentions would protect me from opposition, difficulties, and trials. I thought, listen, that's why I've always guarded my motives. I've really tried to guard my motives. Because I always thought good intentions will protect me from experiencing opposition in this life. Or this was the other narrative that would run through my mind. If not good intentions, a pure heart. That's why I often preach and talk about guarding your heart. Because I know how important this part of our lives is. So a pure heart. But if a pure heart and good intentions were going to protect us from opposition, difficulties, trials, and temptation, friends, Jesus would never have gone through Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Nobody had a purer heart. Nobody had better intention and still have better intentions than Jesus for all of us. They, you know, there's a little bit of naivety In my mindset and what it does is means I was often surprised and it was unexpected and that it would be jarring and you go into fight flight or freeze but isn't it interesting when you see this verse and you see those 13 verses here's a couple of thoughts I want to lead you with if you don't expect opposition you can't prepare for opposition isn't that true If a hurricane's coming, but you don't expect it, you're not going to prepare for it, right? If leader Steph kids knew that Pastor Richard was hiding around the corner with a horn, she would not have responded that way because she would have expected it. She would have been expected. And it goes to reason then, if you don't prepare for opposition, we can't overcome opposition. Some of us live such defeated lives in the face of spiritual opposition and difficulty in this life because we're never expecting it, we're always surprised by it, and we're never prepared for it. So how about we get a little prepared? And then how about not just prepared, what if we were overcoming? Why don't we do that? Because in the example of Jesus, we see how we can do it. Now, the first way I'm going to tell us how to prepare is going to seem to some of you in this room like, why am I wasting your time? Because I'm saying that what I'm gonna say in a minute only because we're in Canada. Because there's parts in the world that would understand this right away and they'd be wondering, why are you wasting your time on it? Because in westernized culture, we've lost touch with some of this. So I wanna bring us back into touch with it. And the first thing we need to do to be able to overcome the opposition we'll face in this life is we need to understand that there is a supernatural evil in this world. There is, there's a supernatural evil in this world. Did you notice in Luke chapter four, those verses I read, it has to do with the devil the whole way through. And here's where the rubber hits the road. Because in 2020 in Toronto, Canada, I'm looking at very educated and reasonable people in this room, and we live in an era of logic, reason, and science, of which I would say to you is not in conflict with faith, but we live in that era, and there is something about hearing someone up front say to this group of people that there is a devil. You want to say, Jonathan, come on now, 2020, Toronto? But that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Here's why we struggle with it in westernized culture. Is because we don't want to believe in a supernatural evil, we'd rather believe in a sociological evil. Because all of us understand in this world, there's cruelty and violence. I've never met a Torontonian that doesn't say there's evil, not evil in this world. We all think there is, but we want an evil that we can fix. So we think about social or psychological evils, and we'll say this. Listen, there's a lot of evil in this world, but if you could just educate people out of their ignorance, if you could just elevate people out of their poverty through opportunity, then everyone would be able to let go of their anger and their hurt and their woundedness, and then we would eradicate evil. So sometimes we're, we see talk of a devil or Satan or a supernatural evil as primitive. Simplistic, even reductionistic. Here's what the Bible would say, though. If we don't believe in a supernatural evil that's rooted in spiritual, has spiritual roots, then perhaps maybe we're the ones being simplistic. So I read this story by Eric C. Miller. It's an account, and you know I love history, so I'm going to tell you a little story. Eric C. Miller told this story, and I thought it was so good illustrating this, I thought I had to share it with you. It has to do with these three characters, actually. This, this man was a president of the United States during World War II. His name was Franklin Roosevelt. He was a Christian. And his pastor told him, you should really be reading the writings of this guy. You'll really enjoy it. He was a Danish Christian philosopher and thinker. His name was Soren Kierkegaard. So Roosevelt began to read those. And the story is actually told by this woman. Her name is Frances Perkins. She was the Labor of secretary during the war years and even before, one of the first female ladies in cabinet, great leader. She's meeting with Roosevelt in 1945, and he he asked Frances, have you ever read Kierkegaard? She said, no, I've never even heard of him. Some of you probably feel that. I've never even heard of him. And she said, well, he said to her, you really should read Kierkegaard, because you'll understand the Nazis better. See, Kierkegaard writes extensively about evil in this world and the supernatural roots and the spiritual roots of it. And, you know, as a young adult, I read a lot of Kierkegaard, and it was really helpful for me to develop my frame of reference. And he talked about how This was the problem in the Western world. When Jewish leaders were coming to the Western leaders like Roosevelt and Churchill and others, and were saying all of the horrors that were happening in Germany, they weren't believed. They didn't believe them, not until after the war. Because they saw the German society as well-educated people. People of means, people that were refined, surely people that have money and power and position and a great education and they're refined by the arts, would never do such horrific things. And Roosevelt said, when I read Kierkegaard, I understood for the first time. He didn't have a category for a supernatural evil. He had a sociological or psychological evil and he couldn't explain why the Germans might be doing what the Jews had said they were doing in that regime. But there was a supernatural evil at work and it distorts truth and it twists things and even really well-educated people and powerful people begin to get things twisted around and then groupthink happens and all types of things and it plays among our sociological problems and psychological problems. It plays into all of those things, but it's at work in our lives. So the first way that we get a step towards overcoming opposition is to acknowledge that there's a supernatural evil at work in this world. The second way is simply, if you can establish that, is to understand that there are two supernatural kingdoms that are warring for your heart. They're contending for your life. There's Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom. And you can see in the temptations of Jesus listed in that fourth chapter how they work. They were wrestling with Jesus' heart as they wrestle with our hearts. Did you notice the first temptation, what it was? The first temptation, Jesus is hungry. He's been fasting and praying for 40 days, and he's hungry. And one translation says, at the end of his fast, he's hungry, and the devil appears and tempts him. You know, I love what it says. So it establishes this, Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry, So he's at the end of his fast, and the devil comes along and says this to him. Next slide. Tell this stone to become a loaf of, don't say it. We have our kids in the room. If you know the answer to that question, that fill in the blank, I want you to run up here because I have a prize in that box for you. First kid to the stage. First kid, run to the stage. No, on the stage, on the stage, on the stage, Percy, on the stage. Yes, yes. That's the way, well, now, okay, the rest of you kids, stay right here because I got something for you too. So, Percy, right? Percy, what is the answer? Tell this stone to become a loaf of? Bread. A loaf of bread. Do you want your prize? Okay, Okay, here's what I got you. I got you a loaf of bread (laughs) and a bottle of strawberry jam. And you know, on purpose, this is yours, this is yours, man. It's all yours, Percy. And I I specifically got you the type of bread that my mom wouldn't get me. Because apparently it's not as good for you, but it's so good, man. You'll enjoy this. Now, the rest of you kids, come on. You guys can each have one of these. These are really healthy, sour patch kids and things like that. And I I want you to just say to your parents that Pastor Jonathan is just setting us up for a great afternoon. Great afternoon at home. Thanks, guys. Percy, you can have one of these, too, with your bread. There you go. Thanks, Percy. Thank you. Thank you, kids. You know, uh, Percy, that was awesome, Uh, the, the jump up. That was great. It seems like a kind of silly temptation, though. What would stop Jesus from eating at the end of his fast? He's hungry. The fast is over, so he's not being tempted to break the fast. And the devil says, when you you can do this, Jesus, turn these stones into bread. What's the temptation there? If Jesus had done that, this would be the very first time and the only time that Jesus uses miraculous power for his needs. See, the two kingdoms are warring in this moment. Satan's kingdom operates a lot like how we see power in this world. People use their power and their position, their influence, and their means to serve themselves. In God's kingdom, it's very, very different. In God's kingdom, just like Jesus, he used his miraculous power to serve others, to help the helpless. To be there for the marginalized and those who find themselves in need. And to be honest, friends, if you're aware of your need, you know we're all in need. And he uses his power to serve others. It's so counter Satan's kingdom. But you can see how subtle it is and the pull in our lives. And it's a war contending for your heart. The second temptation is interesting because he ramps it up a little bit. The devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world. And if you read the text, he says this, I'll give them all to you, Jesus, with no cross. Now, Jesus had come for the entire world. He was he, That was his express mission, to come for this world. But through the cross, pay for it. And Satan is saying, I'll give you the kingdoms at no cost. I'll prime delivery, ship them to you, cost-free. What's going on there? Two kingdom values at war again. In Satan's kingdom, it's always about the shortcut. In Satan's kingdom, the ends justifies the means. I've seen this over and over, so have you. I've watched even people wanting to do good things that look like it's for God's kingdom even, but they'll do it in a way that is through Satan's kingdom. See, God is more concerned in his kingdom about righteousness than rightness. Do you hear me? You ever been in an argument with someone? I've been here. Been in an argument and I know I'm right, but I act very unrighteous to win that argument. See, that's the ends justifying the means. That's working through with Satan's kingdom's tools to accomplish something that we're justifying because it looks like God's kingdom. Have you seen that? It's a twisted backwards way of working where the ends justifies the means. So Jesus is being pulled into this moment. The temptation is, Jesus, you can have this at no cost to yourself. And Jesus' kingdom is, I came to lay down myself. Then there's the third temptation. The third temptation. If you are the son of God, jump off. Satan takes him up to the top of the temple and says, jump off, the angels will grab you and wing you right down to the ground. You won't strike your foot and everyone will know you're God. What's the temptation there? Use your power to get more power. Use your power. Test God. In this moment, See, what is happening with Jesus is what happens to us every day. Do you notice how these temptations grow in significance? It starts with something as mundane as bread. Just bread. Everyone's got to eat. What's wrong with that? Then it moves on to something pretty big. It's kingdoms. And then it moves on to something even bigger. Test God. See, friends, that's how deceit, temptation, and opposition works in our lives starts with small little things. We don't come to a big conclusion, a big moral choice in life that has ramifications that are significant to us and others one day overnight. Small deceits, small half-truths, small uh, entertaining of ideas of manipulation, whatever it might be in our own lives. I'm so good at this. You are too. We're really good at this. And those small little choices moves us either further towards God's kingdom or Satan's kingdom. And here's, here's the truth. Wherever you're stepping and those small choices are leading you, you're going to start looking more like the leader. You know that, that story? Which dog wins in a fight? Whichever one you feed. And you begin to feed it and you start to look more like it. So nobody wakes up one day and says, I'm going to rob a bank today. Nobody wakes up one day and says, I'm gonna take a human life today. No one wakes up one day and says, I'm gonna leave my spouse today. There's successive small choices along the way that contribute to something that becomes quite big. So right now, you're all thinking like I'm thinking like, man, I make a lot of choices in the course of a day and I don't know how many I make towards God's kingdom or towards Satan's kingdom. How do we overcome, Jonathan? Well, remember this. There's a supernatural evil at work in this world. You can't. Don't, don't shut that off. Remember that. And then remember that these two kingdoms are warring for your life. They're contending for your life. And this brings us to the final point. And this is the one where we see the overcoming. And friends, this is going to bother some of you because it's not so much what you do. It's developing a supernatural dependency on Jesus. Supernatural because he enables you to see him, to know him, and to depend on him. One of my favorite authors, and you know, I'm always so indebted to so many of these authors that I get to read and enjoy their information and then be crafted for you in this moment. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis, and it's one of Pastor Keith's favorite authors. He said this, and I loved how he said it. He said, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it really is. You ever do that? You ever kind of do a, a no-sugar diet, and you never knew how much you wanted sugar? Or you ever try to go off coffee, and the caffeine headaches are so... You get you realized how deep that addiction really is? No? Just me? Okay. <laughs> Nobody knows how strong this temptation is until they actually try to resist it. We never find out the strength of an evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. Many people never fight it, and that's why they don't know how deep that root goes in their life. And when they do, it's disturbing the control it has in their life. He goes on to say this, though. And Christ... Because he's the only man who, can you say it with me, never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He never yielded to temptation. We can learn something from Jesus. Here's how he overcame temptation. On the surface, he used scripture. You notice that? Every time he quotes scripture, he'd say, scripture would say, He goes back and he quotes scripture. And friends, that's really important. And I've heard pastors, when I was growing up in the church, say, and really uh, accentuate the fact that we need to be memorizing scripture. And again, I'm for that. But that does favor those of us with good memories. (laughs) I want you to understand, though, why that scripture came out of him. Jesus is so deeply immersed in the beauty and love of God. He knows the Father loves him. He knows the Holy Spirit loves him. He's so profoundly loved and accepted that he's not going to trade that in for some shiny trinket the enemy of his soul might offer him. I've been married. I counted it up in the last service because I got stuck. uh, 26 years. And you know, I know this about marriage. Marriage. Marriage is not always up and to the right. You go through tough seasons in marriage, pockets. Pockets of drifting, pockets of hardship where one of you going through a tough time or both of you. It's not all romance and candles and flowers, and we know that. Uh, Marriage is tough, friends. And here's the thing. There are things and forces working to destroy marriages. I don't want to dramatic over be overly dramatic, but of course there is. There's a supernatural evil working that doesn't like to see that type of unity, but there's other th- factors at work. How do you protect yourself when you're in a weakened state, just like Jesus was in a weakened state after 40 days of fasting, from not being from, from temptation to be unfaithful? Or the temptation to just leave? Or worse yet, some people stay, but they've left. You ever seen that in a marriage? I mean, they're physically still there, but they've left the room a long time ago. That relationship is no longer thriving. See, I learned a long time ago, if you think you will never be tempted in that way, and you think that your marriage is incorruptible, uh, it's unassailable, you're fooling yourselves. Pride comes before a fall. But here's what I noticed. The best defense over 26 years I've found is not conjuring up my feelings for Shelly. It's reminding myself of what we built together. It's that I know her so well after 26 years. I know how to annoy her. (laughs) I know what she loves, I know how she thinks. I love our friendship. And when I'm so deeply connected there, any time you've had that place where you just feel like crossing lines and stuff, you're reminded, do I want to trade in this 10-minute trinket for a lifetime friendship? But see, that only comes when you know you're loved. And friends, I'm convinced many of us cannot overcome the temptation and opposition we face in this life because you don't know you're really loved. So Romans 8, The Apostle Paul does this magnificent treatment of love. It's incredible. And he tells us in Romans 8 that God loves us, but it's interesting the word he uses to describe the type of love that God has for us. There are three words in the Greek that could mean love, but he doesn't choose this one, eros, which we naturally associate with a romantic or sensual relationship but it's really a feelings or emotion-based, it's a circumstantial-based love, and many of you know what that feels like. Because it's here and there, comes and it goes. But he doesn't use that to describe God's love towards us. He doesn't even use this word, philia, which is a beautiful type of love. It's it's a friendship type love. It's a love of being faithful and loyal to people in your life. It's the love a few chapters after Romans eight, he describes that's the type of love I want you guys to have for each other here. I want you to be like family. So at the end of our gathering, we've got games and food ready for you because we'd love you to stay around. and. Spend some time with each other before you just rush out the door, and we're going to end our gathering a little early so you have that extra time. Philia love is very important, but he doesn't use that there. He uses this word, a love that is selfless, sacrificial, and unconditioned, and I'm convinced we have no idea what this love is like. It's a love that loves with nothing in return. I think it's really hard for you, it's hard for me, it's hard for us to imagine this type of love. Because there's no because attached to it. You know, some people love you because you're beautiful. You're cute. Some people love you because you're funny. Some people love you because you're smart. Some people love you because you're successful. Some people love you because they're re- you're related and they have no choice. People love you for all kinds of reasons. And what's hard is, in our culture, in our world, people love you because. If you don't believe me, I just went and grabbed a Valentine's Day card for Shelly. And, uh, you know, doing my part, guys, right? And I know my wife. It can't be mushy. She's not going to like that. It's got to be funny. So I found something funny. But I noticed this. All the cards on the front say, I love you. And you open up and it always says, because and it puts a tremendous amount of weight and pressure on a relationship. Because you know if someone loves you because you're beautiful, you know beauty fades. You know if somebody loves you because you're funny and then they marry you and they find out you're not funny, you're just annoying. (laughs) It's it's a tough pill to swallow. (laughs) Or people love you because you're successful and then you feel like you can never fail. Because what will happen? Will I lose that love? And then God comes along and He says, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a love with no because. I'm talking about a love that has no strings attached. So here's been my prayer all week and we're ready to end our gathering. I'm gonna read a portion of Romans 8 over you. God's Holy Spirit is here. You can hear my voice. God can speak to you individually, even as I speak to you corporately. And it's been my prayer that God's love would wash over your souls and spirits, would wash over your wounds and hurts and pain, that God's love would wash over all of those needy impulses that move us closer to the Satan's kingdom than God's kingdom, and you would allow a love that you never earned to impact your life. And change your life so that when opposition comes, because isn't it true, when you know you're loved at home as a kid, even if you go to school and you're facing bullies or a test and all that stress and pressure, when you know you're coming back to a place that they're going to love you no matter what, and that there's peace and safety there, every day that's how a kid gets more confidence to get up and go and face the world because they know I can always come home. Some of you don't know where home is. So this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to pull up my chair, and I'd like you to listen. What shall you say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for you, who can ever be against you? Well, Pastor Jonathan, I could give you a list right now. My spouse is against me, my health is against me, my finances are against me, I've got someone at work against me, I've got a friend who used to be a best friend who's now no friend but they're against me. Uh, friends, you, you've forgotten how big God is. If you're in Christ Jesus and God is for you, who can truly be against you? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for you, won't you also give everything else? Won't he also give you everything else? If he would give his one and only son, his very best, don't you think he can take care of the rest? If he gave his best, he's got the rest. We can, there's such a peace and a confidence of knowing that God who provided a way back to the Father through His own Son, Jesus, who He didn't spare, He gave Him for you. Ah, friends, He'll take care of the rest of your needs. Who dares, I love this, it's taunting. Who dares accuse you whom God has chosen for His own? No one. For God himself has given you right standing with himself. In Revelation chapter 12, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, the accusers of brothers and sisters, people who follow Jesus. And some of you, you've been listening to him. Because he's been whispering in your ears, you're not good enough. He's been reminding you and accusing you of things you've done wrong. He's saying to you, you're not worthy. And Romans says, that's true. You're not worthy in your own righteousness, but Jesus Christ has justified you. He has cleansed you and atoned for you through the cross, and now you are clothed in his righteousness, and now you have a right standing with God. A right standing with God. Who's going to accuse you? Who's going to point their finger at you? Then he goes on to say this. Who then will condemn you? (laughs) No one. No one condemns you. For Christ Jesus died for you and was raised to life for you. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand. Listen to this. Pleading for you. Hey, friends, you have an advocate. You have someone that is defending you, that is speaking up for you. Imagine it like a courtroom, and God is the judge, and he comes out and he stands or he sits at that heightened place at the front of the courtroom and he has a big foul folder, and for some of you it's much bigger than others. And it's all the wrongdoings, everything you've done wrong on earth, and he plunks it down and he opens it up. And he said, What how do you plead to the charge of that time when you lost your temper and you put your fist through the wall? And you're about to respond, but Jesus rises and says, I object. I paid for that. How do you respond to the charge that you cheated on the test, you lied, you cheated on your taxes, you took this, you stole that? Well, I object. I paid for that. How do you respond to the charge of your greed and your lust and those little indiscretions that became bigger indiscretions? How do you respond? I object. I paid for that. And Jesus is your advocate, standing in your stead, reminding the accuser, paid in full. Paid in full. And he says, can anything ever separate you from Christ's love? Some of you need to an answer to that question. Does it mean he no longer loves you if you have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death. Does he mean he doesn't love you when you're experiencing opposition and temptation and difficulty? No. No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is yours through Christ who loved you. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate you from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither your fears for today, nor your worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell, not even that supernatural evil at work in this world, not even the powers of hell can separate you from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below, indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is truth. That is truth, friends. That is truth. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing, both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.